Attention SLPs and OTs with existing private practices. Are you ready to level up your private practice and your life and make this your breakthrough year? If so, join us for Make More in 2024, a free training offered on Thursday, March 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern to discover how to shift from clinician to CEO. During the training, we'll talk about the importance of maximizing your income, adding revenue streams, setting up systems, and more so that you can ultimately work smarter and build a successful, sustainable, and sellable business. To sign up, just visit growyourprivatepractice.com backslash training. Don't miss the chance to learn how to effectively navigate the growth phase of the private practice journey. See you on the training. My name is Jenna Castro-Casbon. I am part of a group of private practitioners who have taken client care into our own hands. We are skilled clinicians who pride ourselves on providing high quality care to our clients and their families. We are fighting against productivity requirements, administrative red tape, and unnecessary restrictions. We started our own private practices to take control of our professional and personal lives, of our schedules, of our incomes, of our future. We work hard for our clients, but on our terms. We believe in helping others, but also helping ourselves. We are not interested in competing with each other because we hope we'll all make it. We are successful private practitioners, and these are our stories. Before we dive in, can you tell everyone your name, your location, and the name of your private practice? Sure. My name is Stacy Crowley. I am in Asheville, North Carolina, just outside of Asheville, the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's one of the most beautiful places in the country. And my practice is called Learning Tree Literacy. Fantastic. So Stacey, tell me a little bit about what your early career was like um, in general, because there's some information about that. And then as a speech pathologist. My early career, well, right out of the gate, out of undergrad, I went into accounting and pursued becoming a CPA and worked in public accounting in Buffalo, New York. And then I transferred, I didn't transfer, I actually made the decision consciously to move to Los Angeles um, where I worked for 20th Century Fox as an, as an accountant and found myself empty inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, just, and, and always knew I wanted to be helping in some way, but didn't know the field that that might come in. So um, at any rate, I, I one day was on a lunch break and walked by a bookstore and there was a book on the shelf that said, do what you are. And it was matching your personality with your profession. And it was the Myers-Briggs personality assessment that is very easy to take and, um, I took it and it rang true for me. And then it said, well, if this is your personality type, here are all the careers that could make you very happy. And speech language pathology was on that list. And I was in grad school as soon as I could be the next semester. Um, Yeah. And that's kind of how it started. I continued to work Mm -hmm. at Fox um, and went to school for four years um, to get my graduate degree. That's fantastic. So so once you started, um, once you discovered this whole thing about speech pathology and then you, you went through grad school and then you graduated, what were your early, what kind of clients were you graduate or were you gravitating toward in the beginning? 
That's a great question because I really, I was lucky enough to do my clinical rotation in my last semester at school uh, at Rancho Los Amigos. Um, Yeah, and I loved it. I loved the brain. It simultaneously was awe-inspiring and terrifying to know that this organ was (laughs) so resilient and vulnerable. Um, But I was moving back to Chicago, actually, and I wanted to work in rehab with brain injury, and they weren't taking CFIs. So I ended up in Chicago Public Schools for three years and became a generalist, as we have to do in the public schools. You have to know a little bit of everything, but the compulsion, of course, is to know a lot about everything. So um, I was in Chicago Public Schools for three years, and then I transferred to a small school, a small district in the suburbs of Chicago, and you know, was a generalist. Yeah. Had a lot of extra training with social-emotional skills because mm-hmm. Illinois is one of the three states that have comprehensive state standards from preschool to 12th grade for social emotional learning. So I got to teach kindergartners um, those skills and a lot of autism training. So yeah, that's what I did. And I did that for eight years. And then I got really unsettled again with not being able to help kiddos in a more comprehensive way because they would come to me for oral language, social language. ASHA in 2003, started saying that, you know, speech pathologists are uniquely qualified to address literacy. And while they said that, I did not feel qualified to address literacy. And I would see my kiddos, they'd come to me and we would do our work and then they'd go back and they'd have a reading instructor, a Title I specialist, a learning, they would just have all these fragmented services for language. So I wanted to be able to address the whole child and I got back into a graduate program. For literacy, nice, um, and did that for a couple years. So, so that was clearly like the area that you then ended up basically falling in love with, right? So, you, I guess, it was a st- it was well, I fa- I keep falling in love, right? <laughs> okay, so that was like your their second love, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, and it was interesting because. Well, first of all, it happened because of the reading specialist at my school. It was a sweet little elementary school. I walked in uh, into a kindergarten class, and she was trying to do phonemic awareness, but she was mispronouncing the sounds. She was vocalizing the <laughs> stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, but so I wanted to know what they were teaching in graduate school, and it turned out there's a lot that speech pathologists do not know about literacy, and um, so it eased my mind a little bit. And I was planning to leave Chicago and move to Asheville, North Carolina. And what I found was that the public education paradigm isn't set up for one person to deliver literacy and oral language, right? We've got our silos of specialty, speech pathology, reading specialist, title one, what, what have you. And I really wanted to specialize in dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, and on a side note, my graduate program, which was at Northeastern, Illinois University in Chicago, they did not address dyslexia. Got it. Couldn't define it. Hmm. They were not hip to the brain research. The wow. <laughs> education it just wasn't part of the curriculum at all. Wasn't part of it, would not be um, the International Dyslexia Association. It wouldn't meet their standards. So that was really fascinating to me to learn after the fact. Yeah. But when I moved to Asheville, lo and behold, there is one of the best training centers in the country for Orton Gillingham. Mm-hmm. Um, which was structured, explicit, multi-sensory language instruction. And so I popped into that and I got some excellent training 
Um, and one of the things I will say, because I have speech pathologists call just to get information about how they can specialize in literacy, is that if I had to choose graduate school over a really solid Orton-Gillingham training program, I would do OG. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So that paved the way for a private practice um, that specialized in dyslexia. Fantastic. Okay. So now you've had all this advanced training. You have, you've fallen in love multiple times and with, with, you know, different aspects of the field. Okay. So at what point did you say, um, private practice is definitely my next step? Uh, you know, it was, it was before I moved here because the paradigm that I was met with, I couldn't go back to a public school and not use my literacy skills or my new reading specialty, right? At the same time, I had no experience as a reading specialist. So try as I might to find a job here, it wasn't working out and um, I ended up switching over to private practice for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I became an independent contractor for a local clinic, um, which was a really good first step for me, mm -hmm. coming from public school, which is a very different beast. Um, and I did that for a year and I learned a lot. Got your feet wet, kind of saw maybe how they operated a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're new to the area also, right? So Absolutely. yeah. Yep. Got my feet wet, learned everything I needed to learn from them and then decided just to go on my own. Um, yeah. So, so what did those early phases or, or what did that look like? For you, for you in terms of like time, in terms of caseload, like what did it look like once you finally branched out and said, just me? Just me. Um, you know, it was a gradual start. Mm -hmm. I knocked on a lot of doors. Um, I'm a big fan of the seven habits of highly effective people and habit number one is to be proactive. And I, I hit the pavement and I knocked on doors and I really, really worked on building connections. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was a small caseload at the beginning, but enough to keep me going. I had also planned for this move. So I had done a lot of, I had saved a lot of money so that I knew that I had time, a, a cushion around this. I was very intentional about this. Um, so yeah, it gradually picked up and my town is the, is just the right size, I think, for word of mouth to spread quickly. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it probably took me, I would say two years mm -hmm. before I had to say no. I mean, yeah. you know, I didn't want to over, overbook and, and saying no is like, I cap out at about 18 kids. Okay. Which is much different than the public school caseload. For sure. For sure. And then how many times a week do you see most of your clients? Most kids are once. Yeah. Once. Yeah. Yep. So a couple of twice. Mm -hmm. Right. But my schedule is fantastic. I work from my home every morning and plan all my lessons mm -hmm. with my dog at my feet. Oh, love it. <laughs> right. Love it. I actually give myself Fridays to work on curriculum development mm -hmm. for a project that I'm doing um, and some social emotional development for kids, some mindfulness. I mean, I'm a mindful schools educator. Okay. Um, so I think, I think that the flexibility and the autonomy um, can't be beat. And one thing that I realized is that I have more time and space to pursue my, my specific interests, which have changed yet again from dyslexia. I'm very, very much interested in dyslexia, but um, more towards how to help kiddos 
build strong emotional, social emotional skills, regardless of, of what they come to me for. Everyone builds self-awareness, emotional regulation skills. Um, so yeah, the time and space and, and the opportunity for creativity um, is, is really a gift. And, and I definitely never go back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and where do you practice? Do you, uh, do you actually, do you see people in your home? Do you go to them? Where do, where do you see your clients? Uh, my, I will say my first year I traveled everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year is just, you got to get down and dirty and do it, you know? Um, but I now have an office that I see kids in after school a couple days a week. And I share that office with another professional and I go into some schools. Um, there's private schools. Mm-hmm. Um, not and how does it work? A lot of people are interested in terms of office space. Uh, you know, if they can't quite afford their own office space in the beginning, one of the things that people talk about is this idea of sharing office space with another professional. Can you just share a little bit about how that's working and how maybe that came to be? For you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's working really well. I think it takes some persistence um, in finding the right match and finding a landlord who will rent in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I squatted in a lot of libraries, um, like the grocery store, little seating areas I would meet people. Um, so I def university libraries too. Um, but just combing Craigslist and looking for people. And again, once you have that network of folks and the word of mouth, just throwing it out there, um, helped me find this office space. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't share it with a speech pathologist. I actually share it with a social worker who has a several locations and we just make sure that we schedule around each other. So it's been really helpful. It did it didn't make sense. It's a large consideration because rent is a large expense. It's overhead. And you don't want to pay when you're not gonna be full time rent for part time use. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think flexibility is really important too. Just knowing that at the beginning, traveling and squatting wherever you need to, to is is par for the course. It doesn't mean it has to be forever, but it's it's kind of how you get going. Well, and it keeps those expenses low too, right? Because I mean, then then you have you certainly have you know gas and travel, but you can also deduct those miles. So you know, yeah. there's some some trade offs there. But I think that that's really you know I think a lot of people start going to people's homes, and then once their caseload starts to grow and that becomes harder to manage, then mm-hmm. office space is really, for most people, the next step. But you still have to do that in a way that you can afford it and that it works right. for you and, and whatnot. So it sounds like you found a really nice um, mm-hmm. arrangement. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was, was you know, banging on doors and, and word of mouth and that kind of thing. Where are you getting most of your referrals from these days? These days, um, it's from everyone. We have a large homeschool community that I tapped into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's parents that are referring other parents. There's local psychologists, um, schools. I have principals of a couple schools that will refer. Um, yeah, there's not just one source necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's a good thing. And right. the, the homeschool um like networks and homeschool associate. I don't know who you have kind of networked within there, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there for people depending, you know, on where in the country you live. But yeah. I've heard a lot of people, once you're kind of in with like the homeschool community, mm-hmm. that can be a great source of referrals. Absolutely. And it's a, it was a whole new, whole new experience for me 
here, mm-hmm. kind of breaking into that. And what I'm finding is a lot of parents whose children have special needs that they don't feel are being met adequately in public school pull their kiddos mm-hmm. um, and try to homeschool yeah. and struggle with that. So my my practice has always been family based, and I want the caregivers or parents to come as often as they're comfortable. And that's always an open invitation. I have some parents that come every single time and I will actually mentor them as we go, you know, as much as possible. And there's some parents who it's just not, not their thing, you know, but um, yeah, homeschool has been an interesting and a a nice part partnership. Um, Well, that's good. That's, I mean, it's great to have diversity in terms of referrals because you know, you just, one of, if one, if you're getting all your referrals from one place and for some reason or another, that relationship, you know, um, right. I don't mean to say like ends, but like, you know, I don't know, something happens, like they close or they move or, or whatever, a, right. a doctor who, or a, a referral coordinator who had been your number one champion leaves, right? right? You just, you want to think about getting these referrals from a diverse number of sources so that you're not yeah. dependent on one. Right. And I have to, I have to say that, that I, the first year that I worked for the clinic, it was the traditional doctor's orders mm-hmm. needed, to be ha- needed to happen and it was insurance billing. I am wearing two hats and because I wear the hat of a reading specialist as well, mm-hmm. um, that I, I do not take insurance. Mm-hmm. I am cash basis and I do not have to, I don't work with any of, of that system. I learned from my first year that um, that was too tricky for me mm-hmm. to navigate the insurance system. So as a literacy specialist, that's something that to consider too, is that um, you're, there's an abundance of needs. So I, wanna, I don't wanna say they're my competition, but it's a different mindset around um, getting services, if that makes sense. Parents are used to paying out of pocket. It is not, has never been covered by insurance, tutoring. I'm called a tutor in that world for Orton-Gillingham. Um, and I, I adjust my rates accordingly because there's two specialties in one, but, but that make, that, that's a big difference. So I'm not working with pediatricians at all anymore. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that makes, makes total sense. So what does, what does the future look like for you in terms of your private practice? That is such an interesting question. Um, so I'm turning, I'm turning another corner again, and I've, I've really become, and if I can just say where this came from, because we all live in the United States, I think that are gonna be listening to this. Uh, the election of 2016 was really shocking mm-hmm. to me. And regardless of political affiliation, it has nothing to do with that. It was really how human beings were treating each other on social media, myself included. I was all wrapped up in the emotion of it. And I kept finding myself saying, holy mackerel, we would not let children on the playground <laughs> treat each other this way. Uh, and, and it was almost diagnosable. It's a communication, like pragmatic communication disorder. No one could take perspective. No one was listening to each other. Empathy seemed to be missing. And it really got me on this kick of, wow, if adults can't do this, cannot communicate to resolve conflicts peacefully, mm-hmm. how are our kids going to grow up? And yeah, do that's it? a valid concern. 
Yeah. And, and you know, because my little, my little kids would march into our sessions and I know all of their parents' political leanings because they would tell me everything their parents had said. So, are we, you know, we're very impressionable as kids. It's not, I think, something that the public schools are looking at in terms of what speech pathologists do in schools. We're very much deficit model, disorder, delays. Um, but what we know about communication and what we still have to learn, I have to say, communication for conflict resolution is above and beyond even what I know currently. And you know, I'm practicing and I've been in years of therapy, but still, there is more to learn about how to sit across from a human being, have the social, or the emotional awareness and the emotional regulation to calmly have an exchange and find a win-win solution. So my next turn to answer your question in a long way is to, um, I've been training people with that. Let me say that. I have, I have developed a narrative-based story sharing system that teaches kids all of these rich skills just by nature of teaching them the structure of a story mm -hmm. and how to listen and retell them with other kiddos and word banks for emotions. So that's, that's my project, my pet project. It's called Share. And I've been um, traveling quite a bit. I was just in New Jersey and I did a full day workshop for Speechies, which was great. Cool. And the other piece of this is the digital age. Mm -hmm. And the research is coming out in terms of brain development and technology. And there's this great book called Reclaiming Conversation. Oh, I've heard of that. Someone just mentioned that the other day. Yeah, it's a, it's a must read. And the very first book, or very first book, the very first page, she talks about how human beings develop empathy by sitting face to face and making eye contact mm -hmm. and reading each other's body language. So you know the impact of what you're saying and doing on another human being. And all of that is, is getting lost. Totally. Totally, right, and we see that difference. So not only is it, okay, the adults in our world aren't modeling strong communication skills, we also have digital age is changing brain development and how do we preserve humanity and these very human skills intentionally. Um, so I'm, I am hoping and planning to really start more workshops for speech pathologists, mm -hmm. helping us start a conversation about what should our role be in schools. You know, we have, certainly there are paradigms and we have roles and responsibilities that have been delineated for us, but we have a high amount of control mm -hmm. over what our goals are and how we deliver. And narrative therapy with emotional, social emotional skills layered in, uh, I think could make a huge difference. So. Um, that's, that's my one goal on, on the pediatric side and the speech pathologist side, because to me, the infrastructure is there for us. Oh, Public schools sure. have speech pathologists in them, and we are supposed to be the communication specialists. And I think we need to look at communication with a big C. Yeah. You know, every student, every human can benefit from learning how to take perspective. Definitely. Not just the kiddos on the spectrum <laughs> that, you know, so we got to think outside of the box about what our profession could be. Um, and at the same time, I'm headed to, I'm going to become a teacher training for an organization that started at Google mm -hmm. and it's called Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And they're combining neuroscience with mindfulness and social emotional learning for adults nice. because the adults need it. And 
the neuroscience I think is important too. We talked originally about how I, I was at Rancho and I fell in love with the brain. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kind of put brain on the shelf when I went into education. You know, I, I, I stopped thinking about it as something, as the organ that I was, <laughs> I was working with when I was teaching kids. But educational neuroscience is back. It's here. And I don't know if it's back, but it, it is here now in a way that it's never been before. And the world of dyslexia is doing the most research there and really bringing fMRI results to the forefront to inform what a dyslexic versus non-dyslexic brain looks like. Yeah. But we are the clinicians who we have all studied the brain. And I think that as clinicians in a public school setting, we can be part of the bridge between medical community, education, and really looking at, at the brain and the nervous system and, and how, how we incorporate that into everything that we do. Um, yeah. There's lots, lots going on with childhood trauma that we understand now that we didn't before and brain development there. So um, I think it's an exciting time for our profession. And, and that's my next move is to kind of, I, I see my or, um, teaching adults mm -hmm. increasing in my, my caseload and traveling increasing for that and not quite as much one-on-one -on -one, um, therapy. Well, I think that you'll be able to have a bigger impact. That's the goal, right? Yeah, because that, if you can, you know, if you, when you have just one-on-one -on -one clients, I mean, you're you're then really intensively working right with one person, right? But, it's, right? but you've also been able to have done that for a good portion of your career now, and it sounds like you're now starting to focus a little bit more broadly, and you've identified this, you know problem, um, perhaps crisis in our country <laughs> related to communication. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're trying to develop, you know, a, a curriculum or to work within a curriculum to try to, yeah. to make this all work. So you had mentioned um, before we started recording, um, having something to leave with the listeners related yeah. to this. So can you tell people um, a little bit about this? Yeah. So I have a tool that I've been working on developing and it really comes from a couple sources, but one of the sources is called nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. And um, if anyone has, is interested in that, it's a fascinating field and it started in the 1970s by a psychologist. And this man basically taught people how to get in touch with our shared human needs and our emotions so that we could reestablish that we are, we are, okay, we're same, we're same, same, we're human beings, we all want safety, we want happiness, we want um, comfort and- Comfort, right, we are human beings. And, and that being the starting point by establishing common ground for resolving problems. Okay. So taking from that and also peer mediation mm -hmm. and restorative justice practices are all about communication. And perspective taking and identifying human needs. So it's a source I pulled together that kind of outlines what causes a conflict very, very clearly. And it's usually because we have human needs that are um, not being met. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of it, it's just a one page self-assessment of your own communication skills and how they are um, developed or could be improved related to resolving conflicts. And I will have to say it's a humbling experience um, at this stage in the game to, I, I made this, this um, tool and when I took it myself, I, I scored like a 30, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, 
<laughs> it's something that I think that if we can kind of stand in the truth of where we are and recognize communication as a tool that we can all improve on, it has a, it has a unlimited capacity to change how we interact with other human beings and, and yeah. grow peacemakers. So that is the takeaway. Okay. And yeah, it's just a starting point and just kind of, I think it's, it's built to be a self-reflective tool to help folks recognize um, kind of how, how much there is to learn in this domain. I love that. Well, that will be available um, on the show notes page for the podcast. There'll be a link to it, um, which can you tell people also where to find more information about you, your private yeah. practice website or? Yeah, learningtreeliteracy.com. Nice. It's a homegrown website. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and I have free tools there. Um, and all of this is just to help other speech pathologists have what they need and, and run with it. Um, I've tried to make these tools low effort, high impact. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know when I travel around the country and I talk with speech pathologists, you guys are working hard in the public schools. There is not time to do one more thing. So the tools that I've created are not to add more to your plate. You're already doing great work. It's to how to do it differently. If you're already sitting at the dinner table with your kids and having conversations and sharing stories about your day, it's how to add in just a couple more pieces to that to, to lay down some foundations for social emotional learning. Um, well, so. I think that sounds great to me too. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously going to print it out too. I have a, a four-year-old and a, a year and a half year old. And, you know, it's, I'm already seeing glimpses of things about the four-year-old that I'm, you know, not like concerned about, concerned about, you know, but, but a little bit in terms of just how, what his generation is going to be like in terms yeah. of their communication. Right. And, and just what you said about conflict resolution and, you know, yeah. the ability to just interact with people and to be intuitive about what I'm thinking, what they're thinking. Yeah. So I think, I think that you're in a really good position to be um, not uh, infusing some of this stuff in the work that you're maybe already doing, as well as to start to develop a whole nother thing for this um, for speech pathologists. I think that's excellent. Right. And you know, the last thing I'll plug, because I'm not, I don't know how well known this is yet, but, but the neurology of technology, mm -hmm. um, it is an addiction. Yeah. It pings the same reward centers as alcoholism, any type of drug addiction, sex addiction, gambling, all of it. It is the same reward circuit. It is dopamine that is being, being boosted every time we interact. And I, I work with parents who and you may have this experience who they'll take away their kiddos technology for a while and they see meltdowns like they've never seen before. And that's because your kids are in withdrawal. And so it's a, I think it's a public health crisis. It, I think we all find ourselves living and experiencing it as adults, but it's the first time that an addiction has started with 18 month olds who are using technology. Um, and there's an opportunity cost every time someone is looking at a phone or a tablet and not at someone else's face, um, we're missing opportunities to develop social skills and it's changing the brain. And when I talk to kids, I'll say, how many, how many of you guys have dinner um, without technology on the table? And they can't, not many, raise their hand. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're stuck too. The adults, the adults are stuck. It's kind of like seatbelts in cars. It came after the fact when we learned all of the dangers 
So um, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. And, and I think our, our field is, can make a huge impact. So yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, are there any other last tips or tidbits or anything helpful that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of private practice, in terms of, of anything really? Yeah, um, I would say that I wouldn't rush into private practice as a new mm -hmm. SLP that even though I specialize now in dyslexia and social emotional learning, th those years as a generalist taught me so much and I pull on that experience all the time. Um, and I wouldn't do it any other way, even though I was itching to specialize. Um, and the other thing is to not, you don't have to do it all at once. I think it makes more sense to gradually grow a practice. You will come to a tipping point where you might be able to leave your full-time gig and feel more comfortable on your own. Mm -hmm. um, seek out mentors. I think mentorship is wonderful. And I also think you don't necessarily have to find mentors in our field. There are wonderful leadership books to be read. <laughs> Um, psychology books to be read to really expand our view outside of the paradigm that we have for our field into human development, human behavior, because um, communication is behavior and behavior is communication. So I love it. Well, it sounds like you have had um, a wonderful kind of winding road yeah. to get to where you are. And that the road is still winding. It's totally winding. And, yeah. But the important thing is, is that you are going with the road and in <laughs> yeah. some ways, uh, just trailblazing your own path um, that may be a little bit off the beaten path, yeah. but, but maybe shouldn't be. So, right. so we'll yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think that you're doing really important work and I, um, I'm very grateful to have had, um, your perspective and your experience well, thank you. with our listeners. So thank and you. Thank you for what you do for all, all of us, you know, from the very beginning, you were the one that gave the advice of don't quit your day job. <laughs> right? yeah. And I took that to heart, um, because we still need to eat and feel comfortable and thanks for doing this. I think this is wonderful wonderful resource. Thank you for being a part of it. All right. All right. Have a great night. Take care. Bye. Now that you've listened to the podcast, I hope that you're all fired up to help more people while making more money. If you need help starting or growing your private practice, I can help. I have created tons of high quality resources for beginning through established private practitioners alike to help you save time, money, and confusion. Just visit www.privatepracticeinfo.com and get instant access to everything from startup guides to marketing plans to ongoing support and mentorship and more. Listen, private practice can be complicated, but it doesn't have to be. My job is to simplify the process for you so that you can do what you do best, help people. But first, you have to help yourself. Just go to www.privatepracticeinfo.com and get the resources you need to succeed today. Well, this episode might be over, but we don't have to say goodbye. Head on over to independentclinician.com for resources that will help you at each stage of your private practice journey. If you're on Instagram, let's connect. Follow me and send me a DM. I'm at independent clinician.
And if you're on Facebook, make sure that you join the SLP and OT Private Practice Beginners Facebook group. All right, off to help more regular SLPs and OTs become successful private practitioners. Let me know if I can help you too.